Uh, good afternoon, uh, evening. It's, my name is Conor Geerty and I work here at LSE. And it's a special welcome to those of you who are at LSE for your first year. And I hope you enjoy it very much and that uh, events as good as this become routine in your time at LSE, which would be unlikely because this is bound to be very good because we have a remarkable speaker. And it is called a public conversation. So what is going to happen is I'm going to introduce our speaker very briefly, and uh, then the speaker is going to speak for about, what, do you think, Sean, about 20 minutes? And at the end of 20 minutes, I will stop the speaker if the speaker has not stopped. Because what will then happen, <laughs> what will then happen is that there will be the conversation. I may or may not ask a question, and you may or may not, you plural, put your hands up, not all of them, just one hand is enough, and catch my eye, and that will allow you to ask a question. And also, remarkably, I have an iPad, and we have a hashtag. So if you are feeling tired, and you don't want to use your arm in the normal way, <laughs> you can tweet a question to LS, at LSE Law. And the question might be, why do you bother with Twitter? But I won't ask Shami that. <laughs> And ask some hard questions as well. Ask some hard questions a bit later on, if you can. Uh, because I'm sure there'll be lots of really interesting questions and lots of questions that reflect the public esteem in which Shami Chakrabarty is held, who uh, runs Liberty and has worked in the government legal service, interestingly. And ha I discovered in some sort of work as chancellor of some university, Essex University. Is this true? Uh, so amazing plaudits. I've only got 20 minutes, Connor. Amazing plaudits. <laughs> and now let me turn to the chair of the evening. Now, I was born. <laughs> Shami Chukabarty. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Um, uh, about quarter of, a quarter of a century ago, um, I studied here. Ouch. Um, but it means it's always a daunting privilege to return, particularly um, as the guest of my dear learned friend, uh, Professor Connor Geerty, who I think gave me a, a, a platform here about 12 years ago when I, was a, when I was a brand new Director of Liberty, and I've never forgotten that kindness and generosity and all the intellectual support he's given our UK human rights movement over the years. So you've heard, I'm Shami Chakrabarti, I'm the Director of Liberty, the National Council for Civil Liberties, and the Sun newspaper once called me the most dangerous woman in Britain. <laughs> you. Yeah, you may applaud. Um, I'd been dining out on that for years, but sadly a, uh, a certain politician north of the border has uh, recently been called the most dangerous <laughs> woman in Britain by the Daily Mail newspaper. And to add insult to injury, she's a little younger than I am. <laughs> Ouch. Right, so I, what I thought I'd do um, is, because uh, I'm here to talk about the book, which is now out in paperback, which is great because it means it's only 10 quid and it's pocket-sized. My 13-year-old um, my sarcastic son calls it a short book with large font, Mum. <laughs> right? It's not a legal text. It is an argument it's an argument told through a story for saving our human rights out. I'm going to read a little from the forward, if it suits you, and finish on time to suit the professor and not be in detention, I hope. <laughs> um, I finished writing on liberty over a year before the UK general election of May 2015. 
I write this new foreword just over a month after that election, as the great and good of British politics, law and civil society celebrate the 800th anniversary of the signing of Magna Carta. I am sad that so many of my earlier predictions have proved correct. A new Conservative government, though one with a slim majority of only 12 seats in the House of Commons, has indeed stated its intention to scrap our Human Rights Act. Even the possibility of Britain's withdrawal from the European Convention on Human Rights alongside an in-out referendum on the European Union is firmly on the table, and the two issues are commonly and deliberately confused. The deeper, broader attack on universal human rights values has found a tragic and graphic demonstration in the shameful spectacle of desperate refugees being left to drown, not in some faraway ocean, but close to home, in the Mediterranean Sea where so many British families have happily splashed in the decades of the democratic package holiday age. Meanwhile, young people who are as British as me choose not to engage in local or national politics, but instead to leave their families and communities, identify with and die for Islamic State, whose hideous propaganda parades terrified hostages dressed in the same orange jumpsuits now long associated with the abuses at Guantanamo Bay. Senior British politicians rush to Paris to say, Je suis Charlie in passionate defence of the free expression of murdered journalists only to return to London with promises of crackdowns on debates in mosques and universities as part of their domestic extremism agenda. The general election result clearly surprised many across British politics, but it wasn't only the unanticipated Conservative majority that caused a stir. The Scottish National Party, led by the charismatic and talented Nicola Sturgeon, Uh, took all but three of Scotland's seats in the House of Commons. Sturgeon emerged as the political star of the 2015 campaign with her apparently easy manner and feminist progressive appeal, inspiring many people south of the border to join a party for which they cannot vote. Ironically, Sturgeon's Scottish nationalists vow to use their Westminster clout to defend the universal human rights settlement for everyone in the United Kingdom, while David Cameron's Conservative and Unionist Party puts both that settlement and the cohesion of the union itself in jeopardy. As experienced advocate and new SNP MP Joanna Cherry QC said in her Commons Maiden speech, my message to the House, and in particular to those on the government benches when considering whether to repeal the, the Act and leave the ECHR, can best be summarised by the words of my fellow countrywoman, Mary, Queen of Scots, when she was on trial for her life before an English court. Look to your consciences and remember that the theatre of the whole world is wider than the Kingdom of England. For it isn't just the Scotland Act which established the Scottish Parliament that weaves the human rights settlement into our complex and delicate devolution arrangements. It's also the Good Friday Agreement that paved peace in Northern Ireland and which constitutes a treaty to which the Republic of Ireland is also signatory. Northern Ireland and Welsh assemblies are as unequivocal as the Scottish Government on the lack of legitimacy that David Cameron's proposed Bill of Rights light would enjoy in those jurisdictions. 
there would be nothing short of a constitutional crisis if a Conservative government in Westminster attempted to impose a new or differential human rights arrangement on the devolved countries. After years of less than robust defence of the Human Rights Act on Labour's part, the then interim leader of Her Majesty's opposition, Harriet Harman, chose the day after the official celebrations at Runnymede to point out the impossibility of the Prime Minister's position. In a stirring speech whose argument was animated by her own long career, Harman spoke first of the experience of being a young lawyer at liberty, bullied by the authorities and ultimately vindicated by the European Court of Human Rights. Then, with considerable humility, she spoke of being frustrated by the tempering effects of human rights protection as a cabinet minister. But she acknowledged the importance of checks on executive action, and accompanied by new MP and former Director of Public Prosecutions, Keir Starmer QC, promised that her party would be part of the broad movement and cross-party, non-party coalition to save the Human Rights Act. It was a reflective, non-tribal speech from a resilient veteran of British politics with whom I have often sparred. Perhaps the optimism and idealism of the pre-war on terror, pre-Iraq war Labour Party might yet return. I wrote that before Mr Corbyn's election. And whatever your view on that, it's just over a week ago that Liberty held its fringe event at the Labour Party conference. There were over perhaps 500 people in the room, people sitting on the floor, people standing at the door, and the panel of speakers included Charles Faulkner and Andy Burnham, Owen Jones, Diane Abbott, Emily Thornbury, Keir Starmer, all speaking at least with one voice on this issue. Not on so many issues, right? But on the importance of saving the Human Rights Act. Similarly, Conservatives who back the HRA are also finding their voice. Many from across the spectrum of the party are opposed to the government's deployment of a divisive dog whistle on fundamental rights. Conservative lawyers remember their honourable contribution to the drafting of the European Convention, something commonly seen as Churchill's legacy. And their consistent calls for it to be incorporated into UK law right up to the passing of the HRA in 1998. Former Attorney General Dominic Grieve QC, widely respected across politics and the law, is their natural leader and conscience. There are others too. Former Ministers Ken Clark and, and David Davis, from the left, Europhile and right, Eurosceptic wings of the party respectively, are also united on this issue. Big political beasts coming together in defence of human rights and the rule of law. The list includes dozens more politicians, either publicly or privately, opposed to the repeal of our Human Rights Act. On the same day as Harman's intervention, Mayor of London and Cabinet member Boris Johnson also voiced his own concerns about whether MPs should tolerate their constituents being given less protection than they currently enjoy under the Human Rights Act. Every victim of abuse of power who has been empowered or protected by the Act has a constituency MP who knows full well the ease with which the innocent may become suspect and the vulnerable be neglected and ignored. These MPs at times lead a, a split existence, on the one hand goaded by pundits and kettled by the whips of their respective parties, 
seemingly engaged in an unending arms race on immigration, security and crime. On the other hand, confronted in their constituency surgeries and elsewhere with the humanity left behind. Whether victims of negligence or abuse by local authorities, the border agency or police. And they also know, often from bitter experience, that not all newspaper reporting, including of human rights cases, is accurate or fair. The Liberal Democrat Party may have been decimated in the general election as a result of its coalition experience, but there are Liberals in other parliamentary parties, and the new political moment may actually lead to a broader and deeper coalition than can ever be stitched up by two party leaders alone. This is my hope. It isn't just the liberty of the United Kingdom at stake. The impact of our poor Janus-faced leadership on human rights is already being felt elsewhere. Where would human rights in Europe be without Britain's support for universalism? Ask the bereaved families of those murdered in the Beslan school massacre in Putin's Russia. This is what they said in the Strasbourg Court in 2014. The European Court of Human Rights exists as a deterrent to totalitarian regimes like Russia. It works to deter Putin's imperialistic behaviour. If the UK were to withdraw, it would, be, it would be an excuse for our government to say, we don't want it either. Putin would point at the UK straight away. It would be catastrophic. The UK has to understand we all live in the same world and we all have an impact on each other. It is hard to overestimate the significance of the European Court of Human Rights for the Russian people. It is, only, it is the only deterrence from this lawlessness. It is our only hope. The ramifications go further. Venezuela has already cited the UK's ambivalence on human rights as justification for ignoring its obligations under the American Convention on Human Rights. In a speech to the Kenyan Parliament in 2014 on his charges for war crimes, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta prayed in aid our Prime Minister's denigration of the ECHR. Yet the freedoms enshrined in the ECHR are our answer to the unimaginable horrors of the Holocaust, in which millions from persecuted minorities were brutally murdered by a state gone mad. When people across the world gazed in shame across the ruins of a continent that had ripped itself apart, they truly understood our common humanity and the desperate need to protect it. An integral part of our never-again promise the post-war human rights settlement affords legal safeguards for our most precious values, defending us against torture, slavery and arbitrary imprisonment, and defending our speech, conscience and right to life. Yet so much excessive state action fails seriously to make an impression on public consciousness. The nothing-to-hide-nothing-to-fear refrain continues to warp legitimate debate over privacy to the point where those who question the blanket and unchecked collection, retention and interception of our communications are accused of being apologists for terrorists. It's a technique whose full force we have felt at liberty. In March 2015, the discredited and now largely retired Intelligence and Security Committee of the last Parliament produced a report on the legal frameworks governing surveillance. This watchdog made friends and did not always bark in the night. 
This was the committee that had failed to spot the dodgy dossier, expose extraordinary rendition, or pick up on the sheer scale of privacy intrusion outside the law. It was Edward Snowden who brought the latter to light, in the process performing a great public service. Do those who call him a traitor and who lash out against campaigners really believe that people and their elected representatives should have no idea of the capabilities and practices being built and conducted in their names? Politics and the law have lagged behind rapidly evolving technology and social media. What was once a conversation in person, by letter or telephone, flies instantaneously across international borders, jurisdictions and time zones. As we call, email, blog, Facebook, tweet and text. The state wants to know who you communicate with and how, when, where, how often and for how long. It wants to know this about every man, woman and child, both in the UK and well beyond. Laudable justifications inform these impulses. There is, of course, no doubt that crime and terror can be and are planned and perpetrated online. But the flip side is that family homes can be terrible crime scenes too. Consider the extent to which young people in particular, that's you, now live their most intimate lives online. To scoop up everyone's data on the off chance that at some indefinite point in the future, some of us will fall under suspicion or for the purpose of a trawling expedition to find potential suspects is the 21st century equivalent, in my view, of planting cameras and microphones in every family home. Don't worry, the government will say. We're collecting, but not actually monitoring every moment of your life. And just in case. If you're not comfortable with this scenario in the real world, I think you should find it even more terrifying in the virtual one, where the use of your desktop, tablet, or smartphone may tell spooks, crooks, or hackers far more about your life, loves, politics, money, friends, and mental health than a rummage around your bedroom. The balance between lawful and proportionate surveillance on the one hand and respect for personal privacy on the other is the new frontier for all those who care about human rights. And as always, finding such a balance is inseparable for the preservation of democracy itself. And it can't be reached without universal values and international cooperation. In the second decade of the 21st century, Globalisation is a reality and not a choice. But why should it only benefit multinational corporations and the super-rich whose platinum cards provide the ultimate premier passports with no flag? Why should internationalism just be for money and markets and organised crime and terrorism and not for ordinary human beings and their human rights, values and protections too? This is the question at the heart of our Human Rights Act debate. We will decide who we are and where we're heading. And like it or not, we're telling the world. Thanks very much. Great. Thank you very much, Sean. And that was three minutes under 20, which is great. So... 
Look, guys, we're trying to do things different. And uh, welcome to the Epping sociology students who tweeted their presence here. Uh, and the person who tweeted the sun or WANKRs, please stop doing that because it can be read, okay? But the tweeting is working, so send your questions in. The point of, of, of having a short presentation is to try and draw you into a conversation. So it's intended to deliver on the prospectus. And, and, and so we have this time, which we don't normally have, for you to frame questions, make observations, and then draw Shami into that conversation. Can My I start? My favorite, by the way, yeah. is... Um is a, is, a, is a question, it's a contribution that's thinly disguised as a question. Do you know what I mean? When you actually want to have a rant, but you just, you just kind of lift your, lift your sort of intonation at the end of the sentence yeah. or say, don't you think? Yeah. That's like the best, right? They so, are entertaining, and I've already identified a number of people I regard as potential contributors. <laughs> the people who laugh slightly too loud and put their arms up extremely early are usually the ones we go. But you will have your chance. Uh, in a moment, that hand up there. Uh, I want to ask you something which it interests me about how you presented there and indeed what's happening. You spent a lot of time as uh, Running Liberty trying to be broadly above politics. You always made a, quite an important point about how you built relations across parties. And two things have happened. The Conservatives have won an election on a manifesto to repeal the Human Rights Act. And the Labour Party has uh, elected a leader who has name-checked human rights a number of times, who has seemed to identify a human rights position. Now, the lingering desire of all human rights people is to be mainstreamed into politics. Has liberty become a political organization now? Is it openly identified with a particular political party, the Labour Party? Um, no, we're not identified with the Labour Party, <laughs> not least because it's early days, Connor, goodness me, all those years of the war on terror, and now I'm supposed to just write a blank cheque to any political party. I don't think so. Also remember, there is, you know, there is the SNP in Scotland. I've, you know, I, I was up, I've, I've been up in Scotland a lot lately because we have a, a lot of, um, we have an influx of members from Scotland, just as the SNP have an influx of members from the north of England, believe it or not. And... Um, and so, you know, the, that, that, that coalition in favour of human rights in general and the Human Rights Act specifically is, is not just about Labour. It, it crucially involves Nicola Sturgeon's SNP. It crucially involves conservative rebels mm -hmm. without whom we can't defeat, you know, terrible authoritarian measures like, like scrapping the act. So, so I say we are political, but we are, we're not party political. This, is a, this, this remains a cross-party, non-party campaign. You've just mentioned being at the Labour Party conference with all these people and an array of people. Okay. Conservative Party conference is on the moment. I, I don't know, so this isn't a trick question. Yeah. Have you been up there? Not you personally, but what, what's the reception like in the Conservative Party well, for I, Liberty well, and for Liberty's message? What day is it? Today is Tuesday, isn't it? I'm trying to remember. It's London, so it must be Tuesday. So on, <laughs> on Sunday night, we had our Liberty Fringe event at the Conservative Party conference. And I'll be honest, it wasn't as many people at this point as there were at the Labour Party conference, but it was still well attended. It was, it was still well over 100 people. And there was one chap who made the first intervention, um, and he said, I'm a Conservative, and I'm shocked that this event is even happening here. And, um, and he was, frankly, shut up. Not, not prevented from speaking, but put straight by these other people around the room who said, 
I'm a Conservative councillor in Hackney and I support the Human Rights Act because I support the rule of law and I think that we Conservatives have to worry about the individual against the state. And there were, and there were many others. So I, I think that you know, there's still some resilience there and that is the reason probably why there hasn't yet been um, a, a draft bill of British Bill of Rights and Responsibilities with Common Sense. <gasps> you know, when the titles are too long, you know there's a problem. It hasn't yet been introduced into the House of Commons. But you could. Uh, that's very interesting. We'll come, come on to that, I'm sure, with the people. But you could say one of the ways of attracting the Conservative Party would be to be libertarian. And is there a kind of tension, do you think, in liberty? I mean, the book... You know, you'll be able to come on stage to buy the book later on, by the way. It's ridiculous. All proceeds go to liberty. All proceeds go to liberty. I tried to persuade Shami not to do that, but she's done that. Uh, and it's very cheap, poor old liberty, £10, so get your money ready. But uh, liberty, is there a radical uh, tension between selling yourself, not you, but the organisation as liberty, libertarianism? We had this bit of a pseudo-scandal about the paedophile information exchange before the election. No, it didn't to, happen before the election. No, no, trying it to, was trying like to, trying 30 to, trying years to, ago. Yeah, <laughs> but trying to condemn whoever it was, Harriet Harman, whatever. There's a libertarian thread in right-wing politics which says get the state off our backs. And some of the supporters within the Conservative Party of, of liberty would be libertarian. And the human rights thing really isn't libertarian, is it? It's about the state getting involved to protect people, to give them a chance to live. Are you conscious of that tension, or how do you work it through? Well, I, w I, I would say this. I think philosophically... Um, the, the post-World War II human rights framework is not, kind of, it's not kind of limitless libertarianism. It is about a framework for respect and protection. So it is about your, your liberty, but it's also about your protection, and there has to be some balance between the two. And I think that even, even a lot of leading conservatives who would, who would call themselves libertarian are not as libertarian as you think. They do believe in... They, they talk about liberty under the law. And, and it's really interesting that I've found... I've worked with conservatives for many years now in this job, including people like David Davis and, and, and others. And I think that sometimes people come on... Well, and, and, and people who are not conservatives like you, Connor, who come on their human rights journey... Yeah. And sometimes it starts, with a lot of Conservatives, it started with the campaign against ID cards. And you're quite right, it was, you know, overweening state, leave me alone. That's, that's where David Davis began his, his conversation with liberty. But it ends up with David Davis wanting to protect the human rights up because he knows that the only British Bill of Rights that's going to be on offer is going to give less protection to the individual, yeah. including from the overweening state. Yeah, yeah. There's a European court ruling today about votes for prisoners... Uh, which is fascinatingly raising the possibility that prisoners here will sue for not having been allowed both in the European Court and, or European election. So it could be that human rights are going to get tied up with the European referendum. Will liberty take a position? I guess it's another way of asking my politics question. Will, will liberty take a position which is pro-Europe, or will it be above, as it were, the referendum? I don't think that the... My, my feeling at the moment, obviously, we're a democratic membership organisation, I should say. So we have, you know, our, our, mem our members are the ultimate arbiters of policy. And, you know, we, we have AGMs and so on. And any member of Liberty, and, and please become one if you're interested, is, is open to table a motion one way or the other. My instinct is that it's not our place to, to take a position on the in-out referendum. Our question should be... 
um, about what kind of protections people, human rights protections people should have. We, we are very pro the ECHR, but I don't think we need necessarily to have a position, a liberty position on the EU. Yeah, but you are a creature of your members, so that may Yeah, no, that I, may no I've got to yeah. say, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, let's go to the floor. I've got something from Harry Spooner. Is Harry here? Which is, where are you? Where are you? Well done for... No, don't repeat it. The whole point is I read it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, let's hear human, more from you, Connor, please. Human rights, yeah. Any, any chance. <laughs> I wish I hadn't given her that chance 12 years ago. Human rights seem intuitive, but can you provide us with a fundamental philosophical justification for the existence of human rights? You alluded to philosophy a moment ago. Fundamental philosophical justification well, from Harry. I've got um, two ways of looking at the justification for, for human rights or where they come from. One is the... I, and by the way, Connor wrote a, a, a very powerful book about, about this some years ago. Remind me of the name of it. Uh, can Human Rights Survive? Maybe that one? Possibly. That could have been. Might have been another anyway, one. Forget um, it. Yeah. But, but I, I, I... They're also very short with big fonts. I think it, no, I think that was... My view, is this, my, my view is that there are two ways of looking at where human rights come from and what the philosophical justification might be. Um, the, first, the first justification is one that all sorts of people um, have in common. Um, interestingly, a lot of people of faith... You know, we're often told that, that, that religious people are always anti-human rights. Not, not, not necessarily so. A lot of people of, of faith very instinctively take the view that human life is precious... Each and every single human life, regardless of nationality or gender or race, is just so precious, whether it's a newly arrived asylum seeker or a newborn baby anywhere in the world, that there has to be some basic protection for their dignity and their humanity. That's, uh, now, for some people, that's all a little bit too airy-fairy and almost romantic. And to those people who are, not, who are not comfortable with the inherent dignity theory, I would say, if you're a Democrat you have to believe in human rights as well. Because if you don't have the checks and balances that come with some you know, free speech, fair trials, uh, rule against arbitrary detention, etc., etc., you cannot stop today's democracy, like a, you know, a government with a massive majority that seemed great to begin with, locking up its opponents, silencing the press, postponing the next general election indefinitely. So without the... the the protection for democracy that comes from fundamental rights and freedoms and the rule of law, today's democracy descends into tomorrow's tyranny. So I think you can look at it from that kind of democratic regulatory point of view on the one hand, or go back to that, uh, that, that deeper quasi-spiritual, if you like, idea of the inherent dignity of the human being. You talked about, in your book, I'm re remembering now, Connor, you talked about um, Darwin. Yes. You, you know, you had a, he had a whole, a whole other riff, if I can put it that way, that I thought was, was, was fascinating too, and I, I, I do recommend that book to you. Thank you, very, thank you very much. That book's not available, per se. Uh, <laughs> we've, got, we've got this gentleman here. Now, wait, 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 wait a second. We've got this gentleman here. We had somebody, yes, at the very front, with a lot, strong light actually pointed at us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you're very, 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 very bright up there. That's two. And do we have anybody over here? That's two. We have a third. Yes, the gentleman. Uh, we'll take you, and then we'll come back to you, because I'll remember you. So let's start with you, then go to you, and then you. Now, with each of you, it would be really good if you wait for the microphone, and then uh, you could say who you are, 
Uh, we like to know if it's a student or if you come from an organisation. And it can be a comment and a question, but we prefer kind of brief either way, really. So, sir, get us started off. Hi, uh, <clears throat> Omar Solomon, um, work as a lawyer. Um, you used to work for the government. Uh, just interested to know how has that insight framed your perspective and is there any part of that experience which has enabled you to make any concessions on behalf of the government? Great. What did you say your first name was? Omar Solomon. Omar. Yeah, thank you very much, Omar. Really nice one to kick off with. Uh, person with the light. I can't tell who you are, but you will give us your name. We've met many times. It's Andrea FMU from um, uh, Mordom from Occupy London. Yeah, I'm sure I would recognise you, Andrea, were there not a gigantic light. I. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my daughter's going to take it. Look, um, obviously we have great concerns about it, and I'm thinking, especially since I'm with my eight-year-old, and um, she's being very patient, apart from writing letters to our MPs, apart from, you know, uh, articles, apart from jumping up and down on the streets, apart from petitions, what the hell can we do to make sure that we don't lose the Human Rights Act? That's my question. Fantastic. Thank you, Thank you Andrea. And... Uh uh, we have the lady whose hand is back up. Yes, away you go. Yes. Wait, wait, remember the rule one. Um, my name's Lauren. I'm a recent graduate, and I had a very similar question. Um, for those of us not employed in the kind of political or legal sector, which forms of engagement are the most effective to focalise our support for human rights and protect them? Thank you. Great. Thank you, Laura. In any order, the second and third are sort of companion yeah. questions. Um, so um, on working in government, I, I do sort of talk about all of this in the book, by the way. Um, but but you know, I, I deal with it a little bit more thoroughly in the book. But there's no doubt that my sort of five and a bit, five, nearly six years in government, not just in government, my friend, but in the Home Office, <laughs> otherwise known as Mordor, <laughs> the dark tower, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Um, jokes aside, it was an incredibly formative experience, probably the most formative experience of my career, just as important, if not, not more important, than, you know, than, than, than going to the bar and, and so on. And I think I learnt, um, that's, the, that's the bar down the road, not the bar that... You know. <laughs> but that can be formative too. It's here as fresh as week, isn't it? I can, I can. Um, that was form- Coming here was formative. No, no, but it was incredibly important because um, I learnt about how government works. It's quite, it can be quite a mystical thing, machinery of government, how, how cabinet government works and doesn't work. I learnt about the parliamentary process. And yes, I mean, on this point about concessions, I wouldn't call it concessions as such, but I, I was vetted and I did do spooky work. So I have seen secret intelligence, and I have, you know, even back in the day, put up, um, put up advice to Home Secretaries on, on interception warrants and on public interest immunity. So, but I think it's not about concessions. It's about nobody's going to tell me that, you know, um, I'm naive to the nature of threats or that I'm not sympathetic to the need 
for, for security. Because, as I say, human rights are not just about, about autonomy. They're about protection, including, as Connor rightly said, state, you know, state intervention. We, some of our most important cases that we, at Liberty that we've brought, because we litigate as well as, as, well as pontificate and, 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 uh, and lobby and campaign in the media, some of our most important cases that probably made the most difference to, to the UK legal system have actually been on behalf of victims rape victims, you know, the, the common law wasn't so bad at protecting defendants until Michael Howard and Tony Blair decided to compromise those, those rights. But the common law was terrible in lots of ways at protecting defendants. You know, a woman could not be raped, could not be raped under English law until the, well into the 80s when the Strasbourg court said, no, 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 you can't. It was seriously, if a woman complained that she'd been raped by her husband, until the late 80s, the police would say, sorry, that's not a criminal offence. It was the Convention on Human Rights and the Strasbourg Court that said, no, 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 that would be a breach of Article 3 if a woman couldn't get criminal law protection for that. And the list goes on and on. So I think that it's given me a confidence um, and uh, an understanding um, of the, the other side of the equation, but I wouldn't call it concessions. I, 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 I feel perhaps more strongly about human rights, having, having in, the, you know, in the words of Joni Mitchell, seen life from both sides now. Can I come in just before we go to the next one? Because I, I, I would like to get under the skin of this one. It's quite a tough question, I think. But wondering about leaving government mm. and, and then uh, a case like ADT, you may remember it, you're in the legal team. It goes to Strasbourg. The government are fighting to uphold pretty shocking convictions of gay men who had been engaged in consensual sexual activity in a private home where they were raided by the police, they were charged, they were convicted of gross indecency, and naturally they took the case to Strasbourg. And there you are, and this is the point, really, there you are on the other side of the fence. You know, it goes all the way to Strasbourg. These, this is not conceded. And, of course, Strasbourg takes about five minutes to say this is obviously a breach of Article 8. What are you doing here? Was that... And you're not remotely culpable for that, you know, but you're in the team I was the up lawyer. against I was Ben the, Emerson. You're the lawyer trying to work out the good reasons but why they should win. you me out a little bit, haven't No, you? I'm just... What I wanted to get onto the skin of that really interesting question is did that leave you feeling this is not me? You know, you had a job which is moving in a very good direction. This, people do that, you know, they give up because they can't take it. They can't take it. Was there a bit of that in it, or was that just a kind of blip? Goodness me, I think you'd need probably a shrink rather than even an eminent law professor like you to, to really get under, the, uh, to get under my skin there. But certainly in my conscious self, mm. I thought that I um, could take it, um, but I... I would just enjoy having a go on the other side. To be honest with you, when I was on working for the, you know, the, the forces of dark, I, I say in the book, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Jedi knight that went from the dark to the light side of the force, you know, like an opposite, sort of opposite Anakin Skywalker. Um, but I think that I loved it, but I think in temperamental terms, I didn't see myself 
actually as, as a career civil servant who would move from the Home Office to the Treasury and, or to somewhere else to draft Pelican Crossing regulations. It was actually the, it was the Home Affairs stuff that, that I loved. And, I, and to be honest, I, I respected um, an organisation like Liberty as good at litigation, but there was a bit of me that thought, but you're not really very influential in terms of policy-making and communications and, and actually getting... You know, getting human rights values out of the courtroom into the living room and the parliament chamber. So I was kind of slightly tempted by that, to have, I think, to have, to have a, a go. But I've interrupted because we had Andrea and we had the really good questions. We had the so two fantastic contributions yeah. of, uh, that are just so lovely to hear. What can we do? And what is so exciting about this very strange restless moment in UK uh, politics really is people saying what can we do and we will do something, we're not just going to sit back and take it anymore and you've seen that all over the kingdom in different ways well of course I'm going to say you can join Liberty, of course I'm going to say that but I don't just say that glibly I, I say it because I know the difference that we have made in litigation terms, but in campaigning terms, and the, and the difference that you can make when you come together in campaigns like ours. And, I, and I, there are too many stories to tell now, but there, many of them are in the book. Not just in the courtroom have we made a difference, but in campaigns against identity cards, against detention without charge, initially for 90 days and then 42 days. And, and we did that with our members' support. And... Well there's, an un, well, there's an unemployed sub, but, but, but to, to, to go further, one of, one of the things, now we've got opportunities that we, di we didn't have, I suppose, even 12 years ago when I started in this job, including the opportunities for campaigning that come with the tools, for example, of social media. But there's also an interesting, I think there's, there's um, some very interesting ways in which old campaigning tactics and new campaigning tactics can come together. You know, sometimes the, you know, the social media is used to bring people together and what they then um, have is quite a traditional physical demonstration. And I think the, the, um, the internet and, um, and new media also create enormous opportunities for international solidarity. solidarity. And I am an internationalist. And, that, and you notice that, because when I read from the foreword, I've deliberately cited the voices of people elsewhere in the world who stand with us, not just for you know, international instruments, but for our Human Rights Act and, and our European Convention on Human Rights. But if you do want to... Um, Ideally, join as a student or, or, or whatever member of Liberty. I would love that. But you can also follow us on, on, on Twitter. You can also sign up for emails where we will share particular, particular campaigns with you and, and give you suggestions of things you can do. Politicians do notice these things, and I've seen it happen. And one can... Uh, MPs do worry about their post bags. They do worry about what people are saying when they go to their surgeries. And they do... Uh, you know, they do see the rise of of popular movements, um, including what's happened with the with the Labour Party. There may be lots of people in the Labour Party feeling very uncomfortable about Mr Corbyn and, and sniping at him, but there are other people in government going, my God, this guy has got 150,000 members. So um, it's not just about followers and fans and friends. I need, I need members who are prepared to roll up their sleeves and be part of a, of a movement as well. Yeah, thanks a lot. I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm going to call you, actually, if I may, to make a question. Uh, and we have... Uh, Nona, are you here somewhere? You've, you've made an interesting point about prevent... 
Can I see Nona? Is she here? Yeah, so we'll take these two, which have come to me via Twitter, but because you reprimanded me for speaking their own questions earlier, I'm caving in. And then we have uh, this chap at the back who's determined. And then have we any, anybody else that we're... I'm going, to miss, I'm going to get you later on, but I'm looking for a bit of diversity here. This lot... Uh, got a hand up suspiciously close to Andrea with her machine, but we'll, we'll, we'll take you. So we've got four coming up. So, Manolis, uh, say who you are, and Thank you. Yeah, so my tweet was not good enough, I suppose. I had to do it live. Um, I'm Manolis Melisaris from the Law Department. Uh, Shami, do you think that the threat to human rights is related to austerity and distributive injustice? And if so, how exactly? Okay, very, very good. And Nona, yours, you're up there. Uh, say who you are. Though obviously, I know who you are, but say who you are. Hello, um, my name is Nona, I'm the General Secretary at LSE Students' Union. Um, just what I tweeted was, aside from the Human Rights Act, obviously the Prevent Agenda is getting into full swing now. Um, we've seen um, children in schools having their passports taken away, which I think is a massive infringement on civil liberties and restrictions put on freedom of speech in universities. So I just wanted to know what you think about that and how you think people can sort of campaign against it without sort of seeming marginalised by the Conservative government. Yeah, this is an extraordinary new thing, guys, which is that from the 18th of September, there are a whole lot of rigorous rules about our meeting here. And if the government had had its way, we'd have had to have told them two weeks in advance what Shami was going to say in case it turned out to be extremist. So this is, Norma, thank you. It's quite a serious point to the universities and schools as well. Uh, we have chap at the back. Have you got a microphone? And then we have you, and then we're straight back into Shami. Uh, good evening. My name is Wilson. I'm a law student here. I was discussing um, J.S. Mill's libertarian principle with uh, Professor Geerty in his office earlier this week. <laughs> and uh, he gave me a really the tough question. The wrong book on liberty. <laughs> he gave me a tough question, which I didn't have an answer at that time, but I wonder if you know it. Um, <laughs> so J.S. Mill's, the starting point of J.S. Mill's um, libertarian principle, it's the individual. So he's had... What, sorry? Uh, the starting point of G.S. Mill's theory, it's the individual. He said, every man should be allowed to do what he endeavors as long as there's no harm to the others. Um, so th and then Professor Geerty asked me whether we should bomb Syria. That was his question. I didn't have an answer at that time, but... Can you just for a moment sympathize with me, all right? This is the kind of, yeah, but, this is the kind um, of student I have to deal with on a daily basis. <laughs> In comparison with which running liberty would be a piece of cake. Wilson, thank uh, you very much. It wasn't put quite as bally as that, but in the interest... No, I, um, I have more to add. Um, uh, I think I don't you may think, be winding up. I don't think the libertarian principle answered that question because, first, states don't behave like individuals. Second, states... We can, enjoy, we can assume that states enjoy the same rights as the individual. And third, there's no common authority that uh, rules over nations. And um, so my questions are, do you think we can really apply the libertarian principles to nations or to frame it differently? Do you see the limits of the libertarian principle? Great, great. Or I'll, I'll stop you there. But actually what people would be very interested in is whether we have a view on the use of force to protect the human rights of other people, which we all remember from Afghanistan with the Taliban and we're seeing again with ISIS. The last one, uh, Madam, at the, uh, beside Andrea. Yeah. Hello, my name is Mary. I work for a think tank called Legatum Institute. Um, we're interested in doing a lot of work on freedom versus responsibility and the role of the individual, civil society and institutions. Um, 
I'm interested because this seems to be a very engaged and educated group of people <laughs> here. But what do you think is the role of educating young people, in particular, or um, about the workings of politics, how things come to statute, um, in terms of what we can do to protect civil liberties? I think there are a lot of people who don't quite understand what. Um, ending the Human Rights Act in the UK would actually mean. Thank you. Well, it's a handful there. Sorry to give you a no, four, right. but we have um, time. So, 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 of course, austerity is always going to be a moment of grave danger to civil liberty. And, and of course, in the, in, the, in the book, I talk about the formation of liberty in 1934. 1934, 2015, these two years, you would think, couldn't have anything in common, right? 1934, there's... Um, there's no internet. My 13-year-old son is shocked at the idea that there was ever a world without the internet, right? Um, let alone the debates we're now having about the capacity for the internet to do good and to, and to cause harm. 1934, there was no uh, TV, really, let alone CCTV or reality TV, and, and the list goes on. And yet, in 1934, it was a moment of terrible economic inequality, austerity uncertainty and division and the division that inevitably comes from that and then and, and that is always a moment of danger because that's when you get um, racism, xenophobia, the rise of far-right groups not just in Britain but in Europe that's what how it was in 1934 and we see some of that again and the particular trigger for the formation of my organization was the hunger marchers came from the north of this country and they assembled in London's Hyde Park, and they were promptly duffed up by the Metropolitan Police. That's a technical legal term for you first-year undergraduates. <laughs> so that would never happen today. So, of course, it's always a moment of particular challenge to, to fundamental rights and freedoms, and civil liberties in particular, when there is that kind of discord, that kind of, you know, uh, division and inequality that comes from... A, a time of austerity and, and you know and then I grew up in the I was young in the 80s but I heard people conservatives boasting on the radio this morning that this is all great it's like Thatcher all over again well guess what not everybody has happy memories of of, of that period a, a very very divisive period and and because of division and because of dissent there is often Definitely the room for, for conflict with protesters and the police, for example. There's definitely, um, there's definitely room for... And, and also, we're not just talking about civil liberties. We're also talking about people's basic... Uh, you know, people's more, more general human rights. And if we're talking about dignity, you know, people are not going to get the protection that they deserve in care homes, in hospitals, etc., 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 if you get to a certain level of austerity. So, yes, an enormously challenging time for civil liberties when you have austerity, but also perhaps an opportunity to galvanise and for people to sort of stand together in solidarity and, and, and do something about it. Um, what an honour to meet the General Secretary of the LSE Students' Union. Um, <laughs> no, I mean that. I mean that. Thank you for coming. To You know, I... I, I um, I have great respect for the General Secretaries of the LSE Student Union. I used to campaign for people like you. I was a mere foot soldier in student politics. I, I never rose to, to high elected office like that. You're, I think you're so, so right to be concerned. Not concerned. I think we should be outraged by this prevent agenda. 
And the, and the bottom line is it's time, to, it's time to resist and to litigate if necessary. That is my view. Because this is just a terrible, terrible um, breach of human rights and of the sacred trust, frankly, between teachers and pupils and, and professors and their students. And it's so counterproductive. So often... I, I say in the book, you know, some of these most repressive me- measures, particularly in the context of extremism and terrorism, it's the most repressive measures that are the most counterproductive. Because if you, if you ruin this sacred space so that people can't come and have debate because they're afraid, well, those ideas will go and be dealt with somewhere else where they won't be challenged and they won't have the kind of, you know, the air and the space that, they, that, that we need. And how, you know, how dare these politicians say, je suis Charlie in Paris, but uh, not, not, not in London. It's hypocrisy and it's counterproductive and it's time. Uh, frankly, you should, be, you should be lobbying the LSE. You should be, the student union and all of you should be, should be saying to the administration of the LSE, what are you going to do to resist these measures? Are you prepared to, are you prepared to litigate if necessary? Are you prepared to say there are certain things that we will not allow to happen on our campus and then see what, what the authorities do? That's the kind of LSE that I would be proud I've, to be I, an alumni of. Some of you will know that we had the chair of Petsuta here, here to talk about the limits of free speech. And uh, I'm planning a series of talks with extremists. And I think what university people can do is actually, uh, especially at a powerful university like LSE, is challenge the authorities quite directly. Mm-hmm. I think it's the universities that are more insecure, that are more vulnerable. The student who was reading his book on terrorism as part of his terrorism course in Staffordshire, who is arrested and questioned and so on. So LSE's stand can be, I think, about directly confronting it mm-hmm. and daring them to... Uh, have a go to break up the hard, meeting. Yeah, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. You know, break, call the police. You know, arrest us, sue us, prosecute us. You know, I think sometimes you have. Sometimes it's. Um, sometimes one has to consider that kind of that kind of approach. Um, Wilson, was that your name, Wilson? Yeah. Um, the wonderful point about um, what goes on in Professor Geerty's office. Yeah, I think we. Can, I think. I think we've, we've actually had enough of that bit. I think. <laughs> so. I, I'm a human rights person. I, 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 I do think there are limits to just a, just a simple libertarian um, injunction. I think that JS... You know, some people, some, some people are very cross, um, particularly some gentlemen um, of the right of politics were very, very cross at my audacity in calling my book on liberty. It's, like, very, very cheeky, frankly. Who is this sort of middle-aged brown woman to name her book on liberty. What a cheek, right? And uh, I'm blaming my publishers for for that audacity. No, no. What what I'm saying, you know, there are people who, um, there are people on university campuses and elsewhere who think that Shakespeare is the beginning and the end of English literature. Right, there's nothing, Shakespeare's wonderful, but there is other, you know, people carried on writing and carried on um, performing and, and the language continues to grow and develop. And that is true of the, of the thinking around rights and freedoms as well. And so, in short, you know, Mill made a, a very important contribution, but it, has, it does have its limits. And, and I think that we've got further than just a very simple libertarian harm principle now. But, and I think the beauty of the post-World War II... We've also got a bit further than blooming Magna Carta, frankly... 
I am so sick of hearing these people pontificate about Magna Carta when they want to scrap the Human Rights Act. And I'm, I just want them to explain to me, I want Mr Gove, etc., to explain to me how I'm going to invoke Magna Carta when the Human Rights Act has been scrapped to protect my, to protect my free speech, to protect me from torture, to give me equal treatment under the law, particularly as a, as a woman. There's not much joy in Magna Carta for, for Jews and women and all that. You know, it, 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 it's good for 1215. <laughs> That's not 1215 at lunchtime. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a perfectly powerful, important instrument in a long journey. And I say the same thing about Mill. So... So what I think the post-World War II thinking gives us that, that Mill doesn't give us quite as well is the idea that, that, yes, we are individuals, but we are social creatures as well. And there has to be some thinking about, about what we need to live as social creatures in the world, to rub along together, and the importance of... And if you look at all the various rights and freedoms that are enshrined in, for example, the European Convention and now in our Human Rights Act, that, yes, they are individual rights and freedoms. Of course they are. But they're a reflection of individuals as social creatures. That's why you have your free speech and your right to respect for your private and family life and your freedom of association. It's all, to a great degree, um, an expression of the individual as a social creature. And on bombing Syria or, or, or anywhere else for that matter, I am not a pacifist. There are human rights folk who are, I am personally not a pacifist. I can contemplate certain circumstances where I would take life to save life. I would you know, defend myself or, or other people if I thought a threat was imminent. And, and, and I can imagine you know, theoretical situations where one would even go to war to protect people from genocide, etc. However, I get a little bit fed up, just like I get fed up with all this Magna Carta business, the hypocrisy of that. I get a little fed up with certain politicians who will only invoke human rights when what they want to do is go and invade a country over there, but they will never invoke human rights when the victims of those wars are refugees over here in need of human rights protection. Mm-hmm. Educating young people on, I think it was kind of the political process generally and, and, and perhaps human rights in particular, um, it's, you know, it's the sort of thing that we all say is important... It's like believing in motherhood and apple pie. We believe that, that, that young people should, um, should get human rights education, should get a knowledge of, of, of the political system. But, of course, there are so many vested interests pointing away from it. That's, that's really the problem. Not, it's not just young people, it's all people. You know, the Human Rights Act was passed in 1998 by a new Labour government that was already getting cold feet, frankly, That's why it took them two years to bring the Human Rights Act into force. And by the time they'd had all the advice from me and my colleagues in the Home Office and elsewhere about what the Human Rights Act would mean um, in practice for the protection of suspects and refugees and all sorts of other people, they had seriously, they had cold feet. So they were not doing public education about this wonderful instrument. And that's partly why human rights are are so under threat, because, because knowledge is power. Uh, just as the Human Rights Act itself is designed to, to empower the vulnerable against the, against the powerful, including vested interests in government, the, the media and elsewhere. So I don't think we can ever just rely on whoever the Secretary of State for Education is to do this work. I think we, ha- we, as, we as civil society have to you know, get on and, and try and use every means at our, at our disposal to educate ourselves and each other 
Um, and, the, and the real thing is it's not even about education, it's actually about radicalization. Yeah, I said it. It's actually about using that word in a, in a positive way. People need to know their rights and then they need to be having the debates uh, um, using the Human Rights Act as, as a framework. It's not about spoon-feeding people, telling them what the right or wrong answer is to any particular question. There's something's come in. I'm going to go around. But Sham, are you here? I, I don't know. Sham, sorry, are you there? There you are. You don't have a dog in your, in your lap with a Christmas hat on, so I didn't recognise you. But he's asked... <laughs> yeah, Twitter is revealing. I know. <laughs> but despite, despite his absurd picture, he's asked a really related question. I'm, I'm going to read it out, Sham. It's, going to, it's a related question. It's on my mind a lot with this stuff. We preach to ourselves. There's a little bit of this with the Corbyn Easters. You know, we preach to ourselves. There's the 500 people. We applaud remarks about the sun. We, are we talking to the community? And Sean's question is, interested to know how you make human rights relevant to the people who decide elections, not necessarily the people in this room. So let's, let's get an answer to Sean before we go around the table uh, again, and people can try and catch my eye. I'm trying to do a little bit of band. So, Do you want to answer yeah. that one quickly? Well, partly we'll I speak to... to a lot of different people in a lot of different rooms all over the country, pretty much every day and night of my life. So, so yes, this is like, a bit like coming home, isn't it? Except I'm a bit older now. But coming back to the LSE, of course I, I tell the son joke and I, you know, I'm hoping for a bit of a laugh. Etc. But, I, but as I say, I was at the Conservative Party conference on uh, Sunday night. I was at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. You know, I'm speaking Speaking to lots of different audiences, and, and they are across the, 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 the political spectrum, and increasingly across different age demographics and, and, and class and income demographics. So, I don't think we should. Connor's quite right. We don't want to preach to the choir, but we also mustn't always assume that we are the, the only people that care about human rights because we're kind of at the LSE and we're kind of that sort of person. There are, you know. I think ultimately there's a lot more that binds people together than, than divides them if they actually get access to the information, the truth about what's in the Human Rights Act and what isn't there. And they get armed with the stories of the way that people like them have actually been protected. That's people serving in the military as well as those that they detained in Iraq have benefited from, from, from things like human rights protection. It's not always... Um, well presented in conventional media because there are some vested interests there, people who don't like privacy laws and so on. But it is now open to us to present this in via the internet and social media. And I, I'm, I'm sort of always quite encouraged by the reception that you can get in, in, in very different audiences. Yeah. Great. That's a really interesting answer. We've got a couple of people who caught my eye. There's, there's a lady here who's going to kick us off. And then there's a gentleman who's had his hand up practically since early yesterday. Uh, now, are you normally going to, are you going to ask the question about how many of us are working class? Because you, you normally ask that question. You can ask that question, and then you can ask another version of the same question after that. Uh, so we have, we have you two, at least. And I, you're an eclectic community. We have a gentleman up here, uh, and that'll be three. So let's start with you. You already have a microphone in a feat of organization. Hi, um, I'm Fahir Osman. I'm a sixth former here on a school trip. Oh, thank you. That's, that's great. Um, Which school? You might as well name-check the school here. Harris Girls East Dulwich. Very good. Hey, let's have it for, hear it for South East London. Um, my question is about Islamophobia mm. and how it contributes to um, people lobbying against human rights and the Human Rights Bill. And 
My problem is that as a young woman who is Muslim and who experiences both racism and Islamophobia mm. on a regular basis, people point at people like me and they feel justified and vindicated in being <coughs> anti-human rights. Mm. And there's a complete lack of education there. And what, and I just wanted to know what you think we can do to overcome that. Thank you for that. Uh, and who's the we there out of interest? Do you mean society or do you mean specifically the women who are victims of this? Um, the women who are victims of it, the yeah. Muslim community, but yeah. also the wider community. Right, thank you very much for that. Uh, sir, you have your microphone. We know, need to know your name and your question. Uh, I'm Get Your Share on Twitter, and I'd just like to say thank you very much for your wonderful talk. Uh, the German state did not go mad in World War II. Uh, this was uh, the Catholic Church's second attempt to try and fulfill the Holy Roman Catholic Empire across Europe, which it calls the Third Reich. So does, does this not mean that the church and the religious leaders are the quintessential totalitarian regime and are therefore the greatest threat to human rights everywhere across the world? Thank you very much. All right, very, very neat. We got to the human rights at the end in a very incisive way. <laughs> No, I, I don't, I mean, good. I was a bit worried with the old third right. Never thing. have to worry. Good man. I didn't I have to worry. always have a point. You're <laughs> well done. And the last one is up here. Uh, Patrick O'Brien from the Law Department. Um, I, I guess my question is, why is the politics around this so loopy? Um, there have been several occasions in the last few years where it seemed like the UK might leave not just the Council of Europe but the EU over the issue of prisoner voting, which, however you think about it, doesn't seem like the most important issue. Um, and I, that's really my question. What explains what seems to me from, I guess, an ivory tower, what explains the irrationality around the politics of this? Brilliant. Um, great, these are, great these are great questions. Yeah, I'm, I'm great really spread. glad that we're doing this format. Yeah, it's fantastic. Because um, I bore yeah. myself. I know it's hard to believe, but this is so much more, fu so yeah, much more fun than me banging on. So thank you for these brilliant contributions. So um, to take the last one first, why is the politics on this so loopy? Um, there are all sorts of... There are, again, I talk a, a, a bit about my theories about it in, in the book. I think it's partly that... We, it, was a, it was very, very unfortunate time. So to go back to what I said previously, you have a um, new Labour government in 1998 um, commits in opposition to this human rights. I think partly because Tony Blair didn't necessarily expect the landslide that he got. He thought he might perhaps have to work with the Liberal Democrats. Um, and there was a, an idea that you could be sort of... Pro, you could be, progressive, even radical on constitutional reform and then be a bit more conservative on economic policy, etc., etc. It, it, it was a clever little, uh, little tactic. And then you get into government and you realise you can't put human rights in a box over here and being nasty to migrants in a box over there. The two things are going to have some kind of relationship. But then you get the terrible tragedy with tragic timing as well of 9-11. So the Human Rights Act is brought into force... Um, 15 years ago, October, um, October 2000, and less than a year later, we have the Twin Towers. So we have an infant human rights act that the public have never um, have, have never really learned about. It was kind of smuggled through a bit like a thief in the night by by 
by not just by the Labour government, by, but by parliamentarians, but the people were not empowered with it. They weren't, it wasn't shared with them so that they could use it and be proud of it and own it. And then, within 11 months, you've got the Twin Towers atrocity. So the public education only really happened through the lens of the war on terror and it was being mediated by, you know, newspapers, etc., etc. And, and the store, and what's more, legal aid was in decline. Civil legal aid has been cut, cut, cut. And so the stories that you're reading about in those early noughties are stories about terror suspects and refugees. They're not about cab drivers and hairdressers and people serving in the military. Not ordinary people, let alone the decent, law-abiding people. You know, these phrases that the politicians use to what? To divide us. Divide and rule is the oldest trick in the book, and that's really what the anti-human rights agenda has been about. Then you add to it media-vested interests because of Article 8, because it, was article, it wasn't Magna Blooming Carter, it was Article 8 mm. of the Convention on Human Rights that, that created the beginnings of some privacy protection. So that they, and some of these newspapers, they want to do the kiss and tell memoirs the whole time. They, want to, um, they don't want there to be adjudication in courts. They're very happy, by the way, some of these publications to invoke Article 10, when they want protection to publish, you know, they want freedom to publish, but they never want the restriction of Article 8. So you've got another vested interest um, in there. Um, and then we've also just got some very authoritarian politicians on both sides of the aisle. So, you know, I'm in my sort of mid to late 40s now, and my generation of politicians, not the older ones like, you know, Mr. Corbyn necessarily, and not, the, not even the younger ones necessarily in, in, in some of the, the new intakes on both in both parties. I think my generation has got a lot to answer for in, in, in politics in terms of not, you know, not being Labour, not being Conservative or being neoconservatives who don't really like the powerful to be held to account. They know best. Some of these people genuinely believe that it is undemocratic for independent judges to ever interfere with what would otherwise be their, their untrammeled power. Prisoner voting is, is, is a really good one. It's been deliberately used by Labour and Tory politicians over the years to whip up a kind of visceral, you know, visceral hostility to human rights because of... And it's unfortunate that, you know, Mr Hurst, who brought, you know... Not an ideal litigant. Not a poster boy. You know, there's some guys that follow me around, you know, like like stalker ex-boyfriends. Abu Katada, Mr Hurst, you know, they're all... Killing um, your landlady with an axe is not ideal. It's not a good look, but... You know, it's not. And, and so that, that doesn't help. But, but then you've got politicians who, from both sides who deliberately... You know, I, I can remember David Cameron in, in relation to one of the prisoner voting uh, judgments saying that he felt physically sick when unelected politicians... Uh, would tell a government what to do about something like prisoner voting. And you hear even quite liberal and moderate politicians say that, uh, that, that prisoner voting is just you know, appalling. It's, not, it's a social issue. It's not even civil liberties. Voting, it isn't a civil liberty to vote. I mean, whatever your views on prison voters, to say that it's some kind of weird and wacky social issue when it's as fundamental to democracy as voting, I think, odd. And in the end, prisoners are the... Are, are one of the ultimate others, aren't they? So it's back to divide and rule. Prisoners are not like us. They are, you know, they're the bad people who we shove in the dustbin, which is, which is why we ended up with a blanket ban on prisoner voting anyway. And we just need to re-engage with a bit of basic human empathy, as we've been doing more recently 
with refugees. They were, you know, they were like prisoners for quite a long time, and I talk about that in chapter six of my book. But I was very proud on the day that Mr. Corbyn was elected to address a rally in Parliament Square of, you know, thousands and thousands of people uh, who'd come out in support of refugees. So we need to just connect with some of that basic human empathy, I think, in relation to prisoners too. Then I was asked about um, Islamophobia and, and racism, and, and you're quite right that since 9/11. There's been an enormous rise in Islamophobia and racism, and um, and it is completely intermingled with the human rights act debates, and indeed with debates about otherness in general. And I would say to I would say to you that you you suffer not just from Islamophobia and racism, but from misogyny as well, frankly, because it marks you. Do you see what I mean? Because you're marked out because of the you know the way the, the way that you're dressed. I feel. I feel pretty physically sick, actually, that European governments would would um, would engage in in headscarf bans, and I am very disappointed in the European Court of Human Rights because I don't always get what I want for for their ruling in relation to that. And sometimes what happens is that people hide behind the irony of what you're perhaps experiencing is that some people who consider themselves to be even feminists and progressives will, um, will basically hijack that language to, um, as, as, as basically a thinly veiled disguise for, for, down, for, for what is racism. And that is my view about burqa bans, hijab bans, you know, whatever the thing is. And what's the antidote? I'll tell you what the antidote is. You are the antidote. Because you've come here, you're still in sixth form, you're not even an undergraduate like some of these people, and you have spoken with eloquence and confidence, not as someone who's been told what to think and what to do, but someone who's clearly chosen what to think and what to do. And what we need is more people, more young women like you, to have that confidence and to come into the public square and speak up, and that will be the answer. Which, which brings me to the small question of religion. <laughs> which we do like to talk about. In, uh, and again, this is chapter... It's, it's really interesting. And, uh, yeah, chapter six of my, my, my book, in a way, for me, is um, the most personal. And I, I talk about things like identity, multiple identity, immigration, racism, but, but also about this small question of religion. So, in a nutshell, Chakrabarti on religion, you know because I only do nutshells, as you can see. It's, it's a nutshell. You know. So the nutshell within the nutshell is, I think that there are three ways to deal with the small question of religion. Not four, not 14, not two and a half, three ways. Right? Proposition number one, pick your favourite religion. Pick a religion, any religion, pick your favourite one. And decide that you will um, embed it in your society to the exclusion of all other philosophies and belief systems. And its law will be the law of the land, etc., etc., at the expense of, uh, of, of everything else. Um, extreme example of that, I don't know, I suppose Afghanistan under the Taliban, but even Britain at certain stages in its history. And you've picked other examples involving you know, Catholicism, etc., etc. You can find these examples throughout history. That would be one approach to how to deal with this small question of religion. Just pick one and that's it. It is the one true faith and stick with it. Proposition number two 
is sort of the, uh, the equal and opposite, the sort of mirror image of that, which is to say, as perhaps you're hinting, but maybe not, um, all of it is dangerous, divisive, mumbo-jumbo, nothing good can come from it, so let's ban it. Let's ban it all. Or at least chase it away from the public square into the private realm, keep it only in the religious space or in the home or in the bedroom or under the bed with the pornography. No, I know you're not. I know you're not. It's just, we're just playing, right? We're, right? we're waiting for the third one. And the third one, yeah. guess what? We're going to head for the promised land now, so pardon the pun. So, but... <laughs> Very clever cultural allusion to religion. Go on. My, I don't think that either of those... I don't think that either of those are a kind of human rights approach to, to, to religion. My view is that human beings are all creatures of faith and reason, emotion and logic, whether people are actually religious or not. You know, the most, um, you know, rabid atheist and secularist will still make decisions about who they fall in love with and all sorts of important life choices not based on a calculation and religious people will, you know, will count their pennies and make very calculated decisions when they need to. And you're you're quite right to suggest that religion has been responsible for lots of terrible things in the world, wars and, 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 and so on. But people, but, but equally, you know, scientists and engineers built, you know, gas chambers and death camps and nuclear bombs and, and so on. So I, my view is to, to, to give religion neither privileged nor punished status yeah. and, to, and to treat freedom of thought, conscience and religion, that's the right to the faith of your choice, the right to no faith, and most importantly, the right to be a heretic within any faith community as a fundamental human right. Right, good. I mean, I'm looking around. We're running out of time. Unbelievably, guys, this is absolutely whiz by. Let me tell you just about the prison voting thing. I alluded to it earlier. It's very, very significant today because the European Court of Justice that has said prisoners uh, cannot be just blanket banned from voting in European elections. And unlike the other court, the Prime Minister, of course, who'd never studied law, has said he'll ignore the judgment. But you can't ignore it. You can't, it's a different court, and it's directly enforceable. There's going to be a lot of law actions arising out of the 2014 European Parliament election, I imagine. And it could be that these will then produce damages, which the government will have to pay up. So it's different than Strasbourg. And it could become a big issue in the European election. It's just today's news, and you'll see it on the BBC It's interesting website. that neither Mr. You Gove know. nor Mrs. May, so neither the Justice Secretary nor the Home Secretary today in their big conference speeches even touched on Amazing. prisoner voting. Yeah, yeah. So be. maybe it's getting a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. You make all these grand speeches, one, and the chickens eventually sort of come home to roost. Yeah, absolutely. They didn't think it mattered, and now suddenly its stakes are high. We're looking for a last little run. We've got the lady at the back. I think you tweeted as well, didn't you, already? You are now, you are now presenting as a questioner, but you're trying to draw in this gentleman whom I've been looking at for, for hours. You. And I think that is good Samaritan behaviour which deserves a round of applause. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, sir, now you have to wait your turn. You have to wait your turn. Do you know this? Is this your daughter? Is this somebody you know very well? <laughs> he looked around to check. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a man whose life is, is complicated. Uh, do, we, do we, we have a gentleman right up there. That's two men because the woman nipped in and got the man for me. And we have this lady, and this might be the last three. So we have these two at the top, and we have this gentleman. Sir, your comment, who you are and your question. Waheed Khan from the Treasury Solicitor's Department. So uh, we've got a bit of a connection there. Ah, so it's your treasurer <laughs> devil, is it? Oh, very good, okay. <laughs> right. um, basically, What's your name? Uh, it's Waheed. 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 Thank you, Waheed. 
Um, it's, it's really sort of one of two questions, or whichever one you prefer and whichever one you're most sort of familiar with. And number one was a decision today by the European Court that uh, safe harbor is no longer going to be regarded as something um, which you know, gives um, companies in the UK carte blanche to transfer data over to America and that this data will be regarded as safe. And the second question is relating to uh, Professor Cass Sunstein's concept of nudge and the, the idea that sort of governments should interfere more and more in people's lives in order to guide them in the right way. And he's actually gone much further than that and said that government uh, departments should be taking part in sort of uh, manipulating media and manipulating social, um, you know, um, well, basically Facebook and sort of Twitter and other sort of social media as well. Thank you very much. So it's an either-or, answer A or B. You're very, you would have been a very easy examiner in the old days here. Uh, sir, we have the microphone. Very good. Yeah, I was wondering, I mean, it's been a very interesting debate, but it's very national to some degree about civil liberties here. Can we just say who you are? Just oh, so sorry, we... my name's Tim Amor. I, well, do I teach English? I'm best about it, really. Nothing very exciting. Um, to, to, uh, internationally, sort of language teacher. Um, um, but what about the, the international level? We live in a society that's really compromised, I think, by human rights violations well beyond our borders. You know, it's, it's not just the sort of the... Oh, on one level, it's, it's, it's going down the high street and buying whatever we buy, uh, and without any view of the conditions within under which those goods are made. And at the same level, we have the sort of... On the, on the political level, you know, you know, the compromised nature of our government. Uh, Robin Cook talked a lot about an ethical foreign policy. But still, the links we have with some very unpleasant regimes, the sort of links with our friends in Saudi Arabia, for example... Mm. Well, I mean, we talk about repressive, unpleasant regimes. That's, that's pretty much near the top. You know, uh, if you go on the other side, our links with you know, our support for Israel and the sort of ignoring... We talk about, you know... I think I get your point. The, the Gaza thing. Where does liberty stand and yeah. what can we do on that issue? Very good, because there is actually a tweet from Rachel, what's your view on global justice? And we've kind of let it slip a bit, so it's really good it's come up. And this is going to be the last question, and after that I'm going to be asking you for a brief answer, Shawnee. Uh, you'll be Hi. getting your £10 ready at this stage. Yes. Name? Hi. Um, my name is Fulzana Khanum. Um, I'm currently a mature adult uh, A-level student, having worked in the Conservative Whip's office and seen Theresa May frantically try to renew the sort of um, terrorism detention orders and you know, having the 90-day period, etc. Um, so I've kind of gone the other way. <laughs> and um, I'm so I've recently read um, Jeffrey Robertson QC's book, Crimes Against Humanity, and I was wondering whether you share the same criticisms about, sort of super, um, about diplomacy and um, international organizations and that whether they're ineffectual, such as the Hague and the UN, when, and also our re and responsibilities with, for, um, as the other gentleman pointed out, for our governments with superpowers super such as India, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, who you know, got an, a position on the board for the UN, agent, um, UN Agency for Women and also Human Rights, and whether or not, um, aside from actual statutes and laws, whether there's also an issue about um, diplomacy and enforcement of those statutes and whether that's actually lagging behind the laws that are already present and in existence. Okay. All right, brilliant. Nice international feel yeah, yeah. to this. Sure. And so, European as well. Okay. So, to, to my learned friend from the Treasury Solicitor's Department first, I'll, um, we talked 
about privacy quite a lot. So let's have a, a, a talk. I haven't. I, I, I don't know. I'm not an expert in the nudge theory, but I do think that governments could. Um, if, you th- if you think you're a government and you're trying to change people's behaviour for whatever reason, I've, I, I've long been of the view that for too many years governments always go to the biggest stick first. Um, and uh, so, so at one end of the spectrum of methods of changing behaviour as a government, when you're sitting there in Westminster, what should we do to, you know, we want to metricate or we want to deal with obesity or we want to deal with whatever it is. Let's go straight for some very heavy sanctions like criminal offences and poss- possibly even criminal offences that, you know, that carry very serious penalties. At the other end of the spectrum of trying to influence behaviour, you could have exhortation, education, incentives before you get into disincentives. And I'm a great one for for the view that proportionality means you should start with the education and the exhortation and go down the heavy, you know, the heavy artillery route of trying to influence behaviour very, very slowly and having tried tried other things first. But I I don't support the manipulation of information and media. Um... Uh, you know, even you know, exhortation, debate, by by all means. But I don't think I, I like the idea of manipulation of social media or or the internet because I think the great danger lies there, not least in trust in institutions. One of the terrible things that happened during this period that I write about is a crisis of trust in institutions. You know, perhaps it started with the Iraq war. The executive could even lie to us about weapons of mass destruction. Surely not. And we've got MPs' expenses. We've got phone hacking. We've got Hillsborough. Um, so I think that if nudge means manipulation, that would be very bad for trust in, in institutions, and therefore that's not a great idea. And then the sort of two, inter, you know, the two big big international interventions that I won't be able to deal with adequately save to say that I haven't read um, Geoffrey Robertson's book and I'm here to plug my own so there but um, (laughs) but, um, you know I I haven't read it but I I suspect you know he would like to see those great international tribunals being more effective not least because he he litigates in them. Oh, are you being rude about death? Not at all, not at all. But, uh, no, no, but what I'm saying is that's his experience, whereas my experience is more of activism and civil society action. And I've seen internationalism work increasingly well, um, not necessarily um, institutions and tribunals all the time, but sometimes it is actually movements and ordinary people coming together, doing our own, doing our own nudging and our own... Our, you know, sometimes the answer has to be in, a, in our own hands and the internationalism has to belong to the people, not just lofty people sitting in tribunals or, or wherever it is. Um, and I think it was Tim, you know, Tim's you know, point, there are some terrible things happening around the world, and, and it's true. I think a senior Foreign Office spokesperson... Um, appeared before a select committee just the other week and said, you know, human rights is no longer a priority for British foreign policy and that, uh, you know, the prosperity and the national interest will, will, will now be more important than human rights. Mm, mm. And I don't just think that that's unethical. I think it's really short-sighted and stupid and counterproductive. Because one minute they'll say we don't need to have an ethical foreign policy and the next minute they'll say we have to go to war over there because of human rights abuses or we have to deal with the terrorists that have grown up in countries where those abuses happened. So, so you're so right, sir. It's about the global local, isn't it? This is a shrinking, interconnected planet and there's no way of running away from it. And the national interest is the international interest for, for all of us everywhere, I think. Yeah, when you think that hypocrisy is a terrible thing, well, is it really when you have a 
Chancellor Exchequer who actually boasts about not raising human rights in China? You know, what about the good old days when the Prime Minister at least pretended to raise human rights in China? <laughs> uh, now, look, it's, it's, uh, uh, I presume they'll be, bringing, they'll be bringing books onto the stage. Is this right? I was told that what would now happen was a whole series of booksellers would come in. I'm strongly hinting. But the doors should be opened. And one of the event stewards might inquire whether this is in fact the case. Because I, I know that you're a fairly frisky lot and give you some chance it'd be like leaving a church and the collection hasn't gone round and you think <laughs> if you get out before communion you wanted to pay. Well, I'm now busking while we identify where the books are. Uh, and I'm busking it away by saying that for those of you who have come to LSE for the first time, this is not only typical of the kind of interaction we strive for. It is actually an exceptional event, even by LSE standards. I always have tremendous confidence in the nature and quality of the questions. The books are missing. This is very sad. Uh, there will be a book sale. Uh, it is taking place outside okay. with books signing. It's very complicated, this. I shall have to concentrate on it in a moment. Uh, but the, the questions I have full confidence in at LSE and have been proved right again in their variety and range. So uh, you should congratulate yourselves, Absolutely. actually. going to have a chance. Don't use up all of the applause. Uh, the, the, the book thing is complicated. It's taking place. The grubby business of money is taking place outside the hall itself. Now, Shami is far too grand, if I may say so, to be close to the actual commercial transaction. Shami uh, is going to be here. She's going to be here. And you're supposed to come up with the book, and then Shami will sign it. And she will not mention the fact that you bought the book. That would be, be regarded as rude. So under no circumstances say you think it's expensive. Come up, come up, and she will sign the book. That's right, Shami. And you will add something like happy birthday or hail to freedom or... Yeah, whatever you like. You know, whatever you want, within limits. Within <laughs> limits. Some of the Twitter things we wouldn't allow, but within limits. Now, before you rush out to spend your £9.99, uh, can we just acknowledge what a fantastic performance that was to come in? No, not yet. To come in... <laughs> and to expose yourself to one hour and 40 minutes of questions over which you have no knowledge for knowledge, and to be able to answer them as honestly, uh, including a few tricky ones, as Shami did, is a fantastic tribute to Shami Chakrabarti. Can we thank her for coming? Thank you.